welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm the host of the show. My name's Angel. And I'm the better host of this show. My name's Javi. Last year, we launched a wrestling podcast, which backdoored into us discussing Glow, which made us realize that movie and film is probably something we're more interested in. Yeah, we do waste a lot more time watching movies and TV shows than we do wrestling. We are still huge wrestling fans, but we figured if we're going to talk about something useless, we might as well talk about something that we both know about. And our debut episode is going to be on John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. And yeah, we know that we're discussing this in January, but uh, this is a movie that I have loved for all of my life. I've watched the entire Halloween series, and you know, back in October, uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride released the 2018 reboot sequel, I guess. You know, it's kind of like, it's the thing that movies are doing now, where uh, it's not exactly a reboot. It's just like, it, it just wipes out old continuity and becomes a, like, sequel, direct sequel to the first one. Like, Jurassic World does that, right? Well, it's like a soft reboot. It's like, you're not exactly fully removing the lore, and you're not discrediting it, but you're picking one point, uh, one specific point in time in a franchise... And you're choosing to where the timeline would diverge and tell a new story, or I'm sorry, um, a familiar story, but in a different way. And yeah, I think a good point, Jurassic World does that, completely ignoring Jurassic Park 2 and 3, which I'm mad about because I personally like the... Crap, what was the big dinosaur? Oh, the Spinosaurus? Yeah, the Spinosaurus was tits. You like the Spinosaurus? Yeah, the Spinosaurus. Well, I also watched this movie when I was like 10, so... So what's your experience with the movie Halloween? My experience with the movie Halloween is that you made me watch Halloween for most of my life. No, so of the two of us, I became a horror fan later on in life. When I was a kid, I was very much uh, a coward, as children are likened to be. Uh, Angel, on the other hand, has been a fan almost, what, since you were like 11, 12? Like, you started watching these movies super young, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, Halloween H2O was the first one I saw in theaters, and that was back in 1998. So, I was probably about nine years old then. So, I think the first, my first real experience with Halloween was watching H2O at your house, and it was never really a movie that scared me. But it creeped me out. And you're going to notice like that's a big theme for me when it comes to these Halloween movies. Specifically this one. Um, because, I mean, I, I don't want to go too much into it. I don't want to blow my knowledge load just yet. <laughs> but, I mean, the, there is like this eeriness to Michael Myers. It's not so much that the violence. Like, uh, I'm a huge fan of violence, me personally. But it's like just the impending horror of him being around. Uh, that really kind of got me as a kid. And even as an adult, that's kind of like that primal fear of being watched. Um, and after that, I one of my favorite movies in the franchise was quickly Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> worst one. No, like probably the absolute worst one in the entire series. Yeah, I mean... 
That depends if you want it. Well, I mean, we'll go into like what counts as series, what's a part of the series and what isn't. But um, yeah, definitely. It is objectively the worst one. <laughs> but that's why I like it. I'm a huge fan of trash movies. Um, but yeah, like I remember growing up as a kid, once I started getting older and really started getting into horror movies, you would drop all these facts on me. I remember when we were like, I want to say 14, 15. Do you, re- I, I'm, I'm going to see if you remember this. When you found the like first draft for Halloween Resurrection, I think it was Resurrection, and you wanted us to like film a low budget version of it in your backyard. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I remember one of the selling points was you said that one of our older cousins, <laughs> you said that one time. He like sprayed like glade on his arm and set his arm on fire. And you said he can be Michael Myers because he's pretty much a stuntman. <laughs> I actually don't remember any of that. You don't them. remember that part? <laughs> oh, and that's when I was like, fuck yeah, let's do this. Yeah, I, I I mean when I was younger, I was definitely super into it, right? When that when that sequel came out, but you know, as I got into high school, like, I probably started with the series proper. So, I backdoored my way into this. I started with uh, with H2O, which mm. is the first one I saw because it was in theaters. And it was super popular. Um, but before I had even seen H2O, the first time I had ever, like, even seen a clip of it was <clears throat> with my parents. Like, we happened to be at home. Um, it was around Halloween time, and I guess the movie was on NBC or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh... You know, my my parents put the movie on, and I swear to you, like, the scene that I saw was, um, like, when he's standing behind a tree outside the Wallace house when Annie's going to babysit, mm-hmm. and I swear from the back of him, like, the only reference point I had for what it looked like with the white face and stuff like that was Jack Nicholson's Joker, <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like... And because the movie, the original movie doesn't show him until mm-hmm. late in the movie. So before I even knew what the mask looked like, um, that was all I saw was like the back of his head. And one of the neat things that this movie does, it doesn't exactly show you the killer until like, I'd say when there's only about a third left of the movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was super fucking scared of that. And also like, you know, the the fact that they were using the phones and stuff. Like there's one part where Lori gets a phone call and it ends up being her friends pranking her, but... Not pranking her, but like you know, they just weren't able. She she wasn't able to pick up right away. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like it like it's just Lori getting a phone call, and then the phone is quiet, and she just freaks out and hangs right up. And then like our phone at the house started ringing right after that scene. <laughs> so like ever since then, I was like, okay, well, I'm kind of interested in this, but I'm way too young for this, so I'm not watching it. And I ignored it. And then when H2O came out, I kind of fucking finally nutted up and watched it. And then I was so into H2O that I decided to go back and start watching the rest of the series. So, uh, that's when eventually I bought part one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the first one actually scared me. And, like, at 14, 15 years old, when it was the first time I'd seen it. And, uh, that's the movie we're going to talk about this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, the 1978 version of, uh, you know, uh, Halloween, directed by John Carpenter. And, uh, you know, I, I don't... I don't want to get too much into the trivia of this movie. Like, I feel like, especially right now, mm-hmm. because the new movie just came out, like, I listened to at least six or seven different podcasts 
where they talk about like you know all the trivia of the movies and stuff like that. Yeah. So I will talk about some of it because some of it is just par for the course. Anytime you're reviewing Halloween, mm-hmm. but uh, I just don't want to get too much into it. And I actually want to spend a good chunk of time talking about the rest of the series and the sequels as well. So um, you know, uh, the movie was made for a budget of three hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which for a movie it's absolutely dirt cheap. Um, so well, I mean, what in nineteen seventy eight? That must have been a lot, though, right? I mean, I don't know much Not about really, because even, even like, two years later when the Friday the 13th movie started coming out at uh, Paramount, like, they those movies were, like, at least $1 million, $2 million. Oh, shit, really? And um, the kinds of cameras that John Carpenter wanted to use were so expensive that it was, like, a good portion of the budget just for those cameras. Mm. Um, the actors didn't get paid much of anything, uh... You know, the distributor, like, really gave them the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And John Carpenter was so, you know, he was so eager to make a movie that he would have made whatever they gave him for whatever budget. And I think one of the things that gave the producers of Halloween, like, the confidence that John Carpenter would be able to pull it off is another movie that we saw together, that we've seen together before, Assault and Precinct 13. Oh, yeah. Which was the movie that he made directly before this. And, um, there's a certain term for movies like that. I think they're called like bottle, kind of like bottle movies. Ah, I need to look up, but there's like, well, on TV, know. there's bottle episodes, right? Yeah. So it's the same idea, right? It's, you know, I, and I'm a huge fan of movies that take place in a singular location. Like mm-hmm. that's, there's something neat about that. Well, um, when they're done well, there's something neat about that. Like when you're talking about Hateful Eight or Reservoir Dogs, shout out to Quentin Tarantino before he got creepy. Or after he got creepy. But yeah, like you can do a lot with a little bit. And I think John Carpenter definitely showed that in uh, Assault Precinct 13. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Tarantino. Like, because when you're in Hateful Eight, because when I watched Hateful Eight, there was one movie that I was thinking about, and it was a John Carpenter movie. The Thing. The Thing. My my favorite horror movie. Yeah. And Kurt Russell is in it, too. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a movie where. Where you couldn't even, like, you know, where you could almost debate, you know, if, if it even really is about an alien or if it's just about, like, you know, the paranoia of people who are stuck in an isolated location. And that, honestly, like, I know it's a non sequitur and you can edit this out, but that's honestly the creepiest part, is that it takes a barren wasteland, makes you, like, just live there. But, again, one thing about Halloween that... The reason why I I love the thing is the creepiness of it and, like, distrusting people, like you said, is the same thing that gives me that primal fear when when we're talking about Halloween. It's just the eeriness of it, of always being watched. Because that's, like, the big thing for me about this movie. And I pointed it out earlier when we were watching it, that I love those scenes where if the main character literally just looked somewhere you know to their right or to their left they could have found michael way earlier in the movie but there's always that dread that you're being watched and you're being followed and there's nothing you can do about that and i think that was very well executed in this movie it's pretty well executed from the first scene of the movie Mm -hmm. and i feel like it's one of those things that's kind of cliche in movies now but at this time it's like you know the movie starts with the panning with like a moving camera Mm -hmm. And if you were to show it to somebody today who had never seen it before, you're thinking that you're watching like a like a shot zooming in mm-hmm. into the house, and you're not really aware until the camera starts moving. The, the, the moment where you figure out that you're in the killer's point of view is the best part because the the camera starts moving in towards the front door. 
it moves to the right and then like you know looks into the window where his sister is like with her boyfriend Mm -hmm. then the camera pulls out and comes back into the front and then it pans like up to the top window and once the light goes off a stinger goes off it just like that like would just kind of jolt you because mm-hmm. <laughs> everything is so quiet that you could literally think that you're listening to something on mute. And then all of a sudden that stinger goes and that's when the movie's like, okay, here we go. And that's when you realize that you're watching somebody go in mm-hmm. camera goes inside the house and looks down into the uh, kitchen drawer, pulls out the kitchen knife. And that tells you everything you need to know about this movie. Yeah. If you're a big dummy like me and you don't realize you're looking through the killer's point of view, the knife scene and the mask scene, or, you know, those little parts, kind of, you're like, oh, wow, I'm really in this guy's shoes right now. I also wanted to mention the whole, like, the boyfriend being a two-pump chump. <laughs> Judith, her boyfriend, I felt bad for her. Like, two-pump chump. Like, it was, what, maybe all of two minutes from <laughs> the point of him walking from the creepy window to the door, and then you see the boyfriend come down, and he's already putting his shirt on. And I was like, damn, I'm going to give you the best 30 <laughs> seconds of your life. Yeah, and, that, and he was to the dot 30 seconds. Like, it was not that Yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things that, like, that, that like when you think about it hard enough, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, by no means is this a perfect movie. It's a very well done movie, and there, I will air my gripes with it because I'm really good at finding things I hate. <laughs> but, I mean, that is a very iconic opening scene for a horror movie. We, you know, get the knife. He stabs his sister. We come downstairs, and then that's when the camera gives us the reveal that you know we're looking at at a child, little right? baby boy, that's little six year old Michael Myers. And uh, you know, after that, it smash cuts to a dark and stormy night when two people are in a car, and one of them is one of the stars of the movie, uh, Donald Pleasance's Doctor Sam Loomis. Whoop whoop. Um, so Donald Pleasance, the only thing I know him from is Halloween. <laughs> and uh, the only other thing I know him from is I am a huge James Bond fan. So if you ever watched You Only Live Twice, uh, he plays Blofeld in that movie. And if you ever like think about like what the archetype is for, you know what Mike Myers would do later in Austin Powers for Doctor Evil, like the bald villain stroking oh, a cat and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah like yeah. that is Donald Pleasance in that movie. And if I were to show you a picture <laughs> of it, you're like, okay, they absolutely ripped off Donald Pleasance for that movie. Um, and then the other thing that I know him from, and this is super fucking obscure, but I was in high school and during my history class, they made us watch a movie called All Quiet on the Western Front, mm-hmm. and it was a movie about World War One. And he is one of the, I don't know if he's like a teacher or like a drill sergeant or something, but he was in that movie too. So that's, that's really what I know Donald Pleasance from. Outside of that, mm-hmm. I know him as a guy from Halloween. And apparently he had a full on like movie career before he was asked to be in Halloween. Um, the reason why he is the person who's in it is because John Carpenter really wanted, there was two other guys who he had asked ahead of Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. And both of them were in another popular movie that had come out two years before that, or a year before that. And one of them was, uh, what's it called? Christopher Lee. Mm. And the other one was Peter Cushing. And for people who don't know who Peter Cushing is, they did a fucking terrifying CGI version of him in Star Wars Rogue One. He's Grand Marth Tarkin in oh! Star Wars. Oh! 
<laughs> well, originally, yeah. So originally, when they were pitching Halloween and when they were looking to cast the movie, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter wanted to cast Peter Cushing mm-hmm. in that role, and he ended up turning him down. And because uh, he was doing some shitty movie called Star Wars that wasn't gonna <laughs> go anywhere, was yeah. it? Well, it's funny if we ever talk if we ever get the chance to talk about Star Wars, and I want us to one day. Mm-hmm. Um, that first Star Wars movie. There's a lot of, like, fucking weird, creepy shit, like, in that movie. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of weird shit in that movie because it wasn't meant to go past that movie. Exactly. <laughs> so, we'll go, yeah, we'll talk about that a different day, though. <laughs> That's but, cool, though. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. And uh, there's also, like, an anecdote that Deborah Hill tells all the time that she, like, saw Christopher Lee later at some sort of convention or some sort of media thing where he actually like regretted turning down the role because he said it gave Donald Pleasance a whole second career mm-hmm. in the 1980s so uh it's pretty cool uh, I think he's really awesome in this role he kind of plays the obviously he's like the antithesis of Michael Myers um in terms of how he is as a therapist He's not... Well, okay. If we're looking at it through the lens of now in 2019, he is a shitty therapist. But by 1970s and 80s, like, standards, I think he was great. He was packing a pistol. Yeah, I mean, like, it's one of the things that you don't think about so much when you think about this, especially now that the iconography, right? Like, the movie's so popular and it's so perfect and works Mm-hmm. That you don't question a lot of these things. But there's something really weird about the first impulse of your therapist being that <laughs> that he doesn't think you're, uh, that your therapy's going anywhere and he would rather just shoot you and, <laughs> and kill you. And he starts from the beginning. Like, he opens the movie with saying that this guy is pure evil. Like, we should do the world a favor and kill him. Yeah. And, and the version... Like, I know when I was in high school and I actually still had a VHS player. Mm. Yes, I did. I had one of those. Man, really <laughs> dating yourself, aren't you, old man? <laughs> but the copy of Halloween that I had on VHS was the television cut. And the television cut actually comes uh, with three additional scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them being, uh, like, Donald Pleasance. Well, one of them being Loomis in front of a board of doctors, which is, has, like, two doctors. Where he's saying that he wants uh, Michael Myers to be locked up forever because he thinks of him as the most dangerous patient ever. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he comes into his room where Michael's just sitting there staring at a window. And he tells him, oh, you fooled them, haven't you, Michael? And then he goes, but you haven't fooled me. And then it just cuts to the rainy night right after mm, that. That would have been so, cool. So that would have been really cool. And, and I still like that version of the movie is still kind of like my favorite version because it's the first one that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one scene in that movie where if we're now living in this new world where all the Halloween sequels don't exist and the only one that exists is this in the David Gordon Green movie, mm-hmm. uh, then this scene cannot exist. And that's one where uh, after he escapes, the next morning uh, Donald Pleasant goes into his room and in the room like stuff has just been thrown everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the nurses end up, you know, showing him that he had scrawled a word on the door, and the word and the word that scrawled on the door is sister. Mm. And the reason why they brought up that subplot was because apparently John Carpenter really only filmed those three scenes for the television version of Halloween. So uh, what ha- so what okay. would happen in the old days, which we weren't too young for, so like 
you only read about this and don't really know about it. <laughs> but uh, apparently what would happen before is that when you sold rights to a movie to a television like uh, channel, like it was the big deal, right? Like like the Saturday night movie on mm-hmm. whatever network uh, was the, you know, the TV network in your local area. Like that was like the biggest thing of the week, right? And that's how you would watch movies if you were like growing up in the 1980s especially mm-hmm. before like VCRs became commonplace in people's homes so you would sell your movie into uh television and you would have to make up the runtime if you had stuff that needed to be cut like nudity or oh, gosh, you know gosh. like just or scenes that were inappropriate yeah. so um apparently after John Carpenter had to make some cuts they still wanted the movie to reach a two-hour runtime with commercials and all that stuff. So they, so they had, I guess, offered them, you know, to film. More, they they had told them to film more scenes for the movie. Mm-hmm. And John Carpenter and the, some of the cast from Halloween Two actually got together to film those three additional scenes. Oh, gotcha. And gotcha. Um, the reason why that's kind of important to note is because Halloween Two is actually the movie that. Uh, that brings a storyline in that would carry the rest of the Halloween franchise up until 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is Laurie Strode is Michael Myers' sister. Mm. And when I kind of look at this series and this movie, I always like to separate it because to me, <clears throat> one of the things that I always thought about when looking at Halloween is Michael Myers is sexually repressed. Well, besides that, he's also attracted to Laurie Strode. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. he is basically stalking her the entire movie. Well, <clears throat> I mean, you can always make the argument that Halloween kind of started that whole psychosexualization, like the sexual sexualization of violence, you know? And I can definitely see that there's like some sort of weird Freud, Freudian complex of being... <laughs> attracted to his little sister well to a sister like it may be well definitely his older sister because he kills her while she's naked right after implied that she just had sex which i mean i can go down a hole for hours talking about she's also topless like when he finds her oh yeah she is (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like you know like the sexual including the sexualization of violence there's also the whole thing where I don't know, like, the vibe it gave me, like, if we're talking about it from that lens, is Michael Myers has this weird, like, if I can't have her, no one can. Mm -hmm. And kind of like, I don't know, maybe, like, in his weird mind, his motivation is, especially since she just had sex, she's considered impure. Maybe I don't know. Like to me, to me, I think, and and John Carpenter later would talk about this because I think he said that critics and reviewers and people who had seen the movie had all applied some sort of logic to the movie that he didn't intend, and that's that you know the other girls died because they had sex, mm-hmm. and that Laurie didn't die because he didn't have sex, mm-hmm. and the re- and one of the things that I always really like is that the way that John Carpenter describes it was. He doesn't think it's because they had sex. He thinks the reason why Michael kind of zeroes in and focuses on Lori is because Michael and Lori are both watchers. Mm. You know, like they don't, they're very shy. Like she's very shy. She doesn't put herself out there like the other girls. Like, and what I mean by that is like, you know, she's, she, she was repressed, right? Not that we're slut shaming. No, 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 no. <laughs> but no, you're right. Cause throughout the entire movie, she's always the odd person out. Like yeah. she, like, 
when it comes to babysitting, she's the one watching over the kids. She's the one watching over her friends. Her friends are the ones out doing stuff, you know, bringing their boyfriends over, partying and stuff. But she's never actually partaking in the debauchery and the behavior. Meanwhile, you know, they're the ones that are actually out in their action. So, yeah, that makes sense. She's also the one that knows she's being watched. Right, mm. like um, <clears throat> one of the things that oh. I, one of the scenes that I just love from this movie is, <clears throat> you know, when she, uh, well, she sees him when she's in her class. She looks out the window and she sees Michael like standing by the car that he was in when he got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this movie does not show you what Michael Myers looks like up close until the last part of the movie. So it's very mysterious in that you don't really know who this guy is that's looking at her. And he's doing nothing other than looking. But you know he's capable of killing somebody because the movie started with him killing someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the scenes of uh, of her, like Lori being the only one that like, I guess, realizes that she's not who the other girls think he is. You know, like when he drives by in the station wagon, mm-hmm. like one of them, one of the girls refers to him as somebody they know called Devin Graham or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And then like, you know, they it's like, you don't look inside the window and see that this guy's obviously wearing like a pale white mask and, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like Lori's the only one who kind of realize who's, who figures that part out. Um, she's the only one who sees him in the bush, like, you know, standing outside the bushes where he just sidesteps right into the bushes right after mm-hmm. which like fucking scared the shit out of me like when i was really scared of this movie watching it for the first time mm-hmm. it that scene has always replayed itself in my head like it's just where he just sidesteps and then yeah, he's he just like there. glides like there's you know and there's this weird movement where he like you know he's obviously walking but he looks like he just glides everywhere it's in a the very inhuman look you know like and I, you know, like there's something that there is something scary to us about to us by which I mean humans, where if we don't understand how something works, or if we have a pre-described notion as to how something works and it doesn't work that way, it freaks us the fuck out. Yeah. So I totally understand what you're saying. Like the fact that you know what a normal human is supposed to move like and Michael Myers doesn't move like that immediately starts like it makes you feel eerie. And that and you know it's the little things like that that really set the tone. And pretty much from that scene on, I want to say for the next like 10, 15 minutes This is where the movie really gets me. And this is what I wanted to mention earlier. Is that this movie doesn't frighten me in the sense that, oh my god, the gore. Or, oh my god, I feel like I'm always in... I'm always in danger. What I'm, what it worries me about, or what scares me about it, is the eeriness of it all. That you never at any point do you feel like Michael Myers is not on screen. Because they do such a good job of hiding him in plain sight. And they hide him in things that are such normal, everyday, like, items, you know? Yeah, a jumpsuit, like, he got it from a, what was it, a tow truck worker, right? Like, one of the most innocuous looking outfits, right? And then they hide him in a station wagon. The most innocuous looking car that, if you're not paying attention, it's in the background of your day-to-day life. And the reason why you don't really think about him wearing a mask is because it's Halloween. Exactly. Like, what perfect way. Like, he walks up to a school at one point in the movie. 
in, which would not happen today, by the oh, way. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> but not at all. But in 1978, yes, you can buy the logic of this film. A kid runs into him and doesn't freak out because he just thinks that this is another well, guy f- on Halloween. Yeah, he freaks out, but he freaks out more. Like to me, like I feel like he freaks out more as if he was running and he ran into someone by accident. Yeah, he doesn't freak out in the sense that he, and never at any point does that kid in particular feel that he's in danger. He just feels like, oh, I ran into an adult. And I think the other thing, too, is, like, he's always just so, like... I love that you use the phrase hiding in plain sight. Because he's totally, like... You could see him. Like, he doesn't hide in a way where he's obviously, like, crouching under a table. Or Mm -hmm. hiding behind a sofa. Like, he... The way he hides is he is literally just right next to the tree. But behind it far enough that he's like a little obscured mm-hmm. and if some and if some of the other girls in the movie were just a lit like if they just paid a little bit closer attention they might be able to see him and that's why i was telling you like we saw it right now right now uh, mind you we're recording this literally after watching it because i needed a refresher on it the scene that will always bother me is michael drives up to the crime scene so so just to set the tone, right? So at one point, the hardware store gets broken into. Someone steals a Halloween mask, a knife, and some rope. Never address who steals it in the rest of the movie, but you, it's meant to assume that Michael Myers stole it. But then the thing is, he's already wearing the mask. So, you, you know, it, it's just one of those things that kind of like it nags well, at you in the back of the head. I mean, it, it very much is him. But it's just, they're not seeing the hardware store having gotten broken into until just this moment later Yeah, in the but afternoon. remember the alarm's going off. So it's like, has the alarm been going off the entire night? Because it's assumed he stole it at, he's been wearing this mask at least since the morning, early morning. That's true. You know? That's true. Like, when you see him at like 8 in the morning, you'd assume it's 8 in the morning because Lori and, 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 uh, God, Tommy Wallace are both... Uh, what was her no, name? No, not Tommy Wallace. Sorry, uh, it was Tommy Doyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tommy Doyle and Lin and Linda. Lindsay's the other girl. Sorry. No. Okay, let me start over. <laughs> Lori and Tommy Doyle are walking. You know, at to school in the I morning. It was no, that's in the afternoon when they're. Oh out of yeah, 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 yeah. So in the morning, it's Lori and the child she babysits. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and they're that's the, Tommy and they're Doyle. walking and they're walking. You know, uh, to school presumably, and he is wearing the mask and it is morning. Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah, you totally brought something up that I hadn't even thought about. <laughs> so it's like implied, like the fact that the alarm's going off makes you think that it's fairly recent. And what does the what does the sheriff chalk it up to? Oh, it's Halloween. It's just kids being kids, right? And throughout this entire scene, so um, I believe it's uh, Annie and Lori drive up. They see the sheriff, um, and he explains, yeah, someone broke in, stole some stuff. They drive away. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's when Dr. Loomis comes up. Dr. Loomis is like, I have, when he tells the sheriff, I have something important to talk to you about. So while he's explaining everything to the sheriff, what do we see in the background but this station wagon that Michael Myers is driving? And it's... It literally he follows the laws of the road as well as he stops and does a complete stop. Loomis, all he has to do is turn around. And he doesn't because why not? You don't have to, right? And then he just drives off and you lose sight of him and that's when you freak out because that's when he's probably his most dangerous. When Michael Myers is out of sight in the movie and that's, that's the fear to me. The fear of myself being watched 
and then losing sight of who was watching me. <laughs> I think the other thing that makes this movie kind of perfect and is that like because they didn't really have the money to hire a lot of extras for movies, mm-hmm. a lot of the scenes of the neighborhoods are empty. Yes. And you're like and and it just it reminds you of like leaving somebody's house at like two o'clock in the morning and you're like out in a town like and nobody is there, right? Mm-hmm. Like and it's so quiet. All you hear are like the steps of like your feet hitting the concrete and it's just like that's the feeling of isolation that a lot of the characters in the movie have. And normally you would look at that as like, you know, problems with the low budget. You know, and be like, oh, it's a low budget movie. You can't really hire extras and stuff like that. But it's just the way that they shoot everything. Uh, John Carpenter insisted on using, uh, you know, these like giant, you know, film wide cameras mm-hmm. that would shoot everything in what they call Panavision. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so there's so much space on the screen. And I think one of the things that they that, that Deborah Hill also describes in the documentary, in a Halloween documentary on this, is that the movie is supposed to start in a way to where the first shots look wide and sprawling. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that as the movie goes on, it starts getting like it starts getting like closer and closer and closer together to where like by the end when Laurie is hiding in the closet you're in such an enclosed space mm-hmm. that it's such a far cry from where the movie started in that giant open space mm-hmm. yeah and... the streets are like two lane wide open streets you got wide open backyards wide open front yards every like you're saying everything in this movie is wide open spaces until you know the climax of the movie and then it just it 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 induces that claustrophobia and it makes you feel panic and i think the psychology in this movie is they did a lot with a little yeah and john carpenter is a master of horror and we really want to dedicate an entire episode to itself um to the new halloween movie because i think david gordon green does a lot of there's just a ton of tributes to this movie in it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to discuss it yet. But I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's like no other movie in this franchise ever recaptures that. Mm-hmm. And I think the only movie that does the best job of getting close to this is the second one. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the rest of the series and kind of, you know, have a quick run through on the Halloween franchise, um, I think one of the things that's awesome about this movie is that. It you know it opens all the tropes every mm-hmm. time that you know that Laurie the gets the best girl, of Michael yeah. Myers and she like hits him with you know the needle first to the side of his head mm-hmm. and uh, you know he falls she just kind of thinks okay well she has a knife in her hand mm-hmm. and she could stab him if she wanted to but to be honest if you're watching this as the first slasher movie why would you think he's gonna get back up mm-hmm. right so she drops the knife. But if you're watching that movie today, it would frustrate you mm-hmm. because you would not understand like why she's, you know, be like, well, God, why is she just like not, you know, like <laughs> just fucking da, 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 just like, get, just, stab like, her just, a lot. Yeah. Like just like rapid fire, like stab him. Just <laughs> fucking shoot her. Shoot him with the gun you don't have. <laughs> so it's like, you know, she drops a knife. Uh, she goes to hide in the closet and the closet scene in Halloween is the scene that made me a fan of this entire franchise. It is my favorite scene in the whole series. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis sitting in the closet. 
Michael starts breaking through the slats and just like mm-hmm. seeing the shadow through the slats is fucking creepy. The it's lights are off. Terrifying. And, and just like what they do that also just induces more terror is by this point they've shown you the mask, right? That white William Shatner mask mm-hmm. that was painted ghost white and the eyes were <laughs> widened and stuff like that. And if you ever see like the actual version of that mask before it was modified, it's still fucking terrifying. Oh, it, yeah, doesn't, totally. it does not look that much like William Shatner at all. <laughs> they did a terrible job making it look like <laughs> William Shatner. So uh yeah, he breaks through the slats in the in the closet and right before Laurie stabs him he yanks at uh, at the light yes. inside the closet. I'm glad you brought that up. So the light comes on and you just see Michael Myers in clear view, like the mask in clear view. Mm-hmm. And he, right at that moment, he turns to face the camera and, you know, lowers his head right where the camera is. And that's when Laurie, you know, shoves a coat hanger in his eye. Mm-hmm. And as he's like, you know, grabbing at his face, that's when she stabs him with a knife and he mm-hmm. finally falls outside. It's, I love that part. That's my favorite thing, that favorite detail in that movie. When he pulls the light for the first time in the movie, the one thing that made you feel comfort, because you're like, oh yeah, Michael Myers wouldn't possibly do anything during the daytime, or when there's light out, finally gets turned against you, because the one thing that she was counting on was the fact that maybe he couldn't see her. Also, when the light's on, it's like, nope, now there's nothing to hide from, you know? The, the, the light reveals, the light takes away any security you had for the first time you felt safe in the dark and the fact that that was taken away just really fucking jars you because you're so used to being the light being the safety in this movie and now it's not yeah and uh and then right after that that's when you know dr loomis who's kind of like in his own separate movie at the time like he's with the sheriff Mm -hmm. but they're just kind of sitting at michael's house waiting for him and, you know, once he goes outside of Michael's uh, house, that's when he sees the station wagon. And that's the other thing. Like, the geography in this movie is... It's bizarre. It doesn't make... Bizarre, yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't totally make sense. But it's such a good classic movie that you don't think about it. That you try not to think about it too much. Well, like you said, it sets the... I mean, it's kind of like sets the blueprint for all slasher movies moving forward. So, it, these again, these are things you don't think about. Until way later after you've seen enough slasher movies to notice the details, you know? Yeah. So, so he ends up finding uh, the, you know, the Doyle house, which is where they are. Uh, both Lindsay Wallace, who's, you know, the kid that was being babysat by Lori's friend. And, uh, you know, and then the kid that Lori's babysitting, they're both with her. She's their protector, basically. Um, you know, uh, she... Gets attacked by Michael after, you know, after he has gotten stabbed, he falls out of the closet, Lori comes out of the closet, and then she drops the knife. And then she walks over to the door, and she's standing there facing away from Michael, not thinking about it, and, you know, because this is the first ever, you're not expecting anything to happen. Mm -hmm. And then silently off screen, Michael Myers sits up. And then the awesome John Carpenter music, which we haven't discussed at all yet. Oh, no, I was going to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> the awesome John Carpenter score, which is just one piano note. Mm-hmm. And it's played, you know, the dun, 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 dun. And it just, like, and it just hits you at that moment. panic. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing, too. This movie is relatively bloodless. Uh, and the music does so much to provide the mood and the atmosphere and i think the other reason why i think 
David Gordon Green's Halloween is the only close comparative to this movie in this series is because John Carpenter comes back to do the music again. Mm-hmm. And he does he does four movies in this series in terms of music. And I'd say that the score for his new movie is probably as good as his Halloween 3 score, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Lori gets attacked by Michael. Michael's choking her. And then that's when Dr. Loomis shows up, shoots him six times. <laughs> He falls off the balcony. <laughs> Action hero Lewis. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like a 59-year-old doctor that, like, shoots you and you fall out the window. And... Man, when I was, like, 10 years old, I wanted a, a Dr. Loomis action figure with karate chopping action. <laughs> well, like, imagine if, like, this is your only point of reference for a, for a psychologist. <laughs> Where you, like, go to college and you're, like, trained to be a psychologist. He's just raging. He's like, where do we give him guns? Uh, professor, I thought this profession was going to involve a lot more serial killer shooting. <laughs> this shit ain't for me, dude. But, you know, uh, then the movie ends on the perfect note. Loomis looks over the balcony. Michael disappeared. He's gone. So the movie tells you that Michael's out in the world somewhere. And he's not dead. He is not. So, you know, this movie, it's minimalist. It's awesome. You know, there's not that much depth to it. Um, It's pretty cut and dry. And I think, and to me, like, this movie always stands separate from the rest of the series. Uh, Mostly because one of the things that I've always liked about this movie, and I've always wanted to think of it that way, is that Michael's obsessed with Lori, and not Mm -hmm. because he's related to her. And... Even though the next movie in the series, Halloween 2, is probably my favorite, most commonly watched one of the series, um, I'm not crazy about the Michael Myers being Laurie's brother storyline that carries the rest of the franchise. So, earlier in the show, you mentioned that he's sexually attracted. Well, and that's even the thing. Maybe it's not necessarily sexually attracted, but he is romantically attracted right. he's, he's obsessed with her and he's he, obsessed and he you know because maybe he was in a psych you know sanitarium for most of his life he doesn't really know how to express himself um you know like but <laughs> like that, i've I mean, listened uh, i've listened to podcasts where they've actually done like in-depth psychoanalysis of michael myers and oh, i don't no. want to get that deep into that oh no he definitely knows how to express himself because someone like i mentioned it to you earlier the, I never noticed it, and maybe it's because I just didn't really pay that much attention, or maybe I zoned out or something, but tonight was the first time I noticed he builds a tableau for Lori, and where he puts Judith's head headstone on the bed over Annie's body, yeah. and then puts the, the jack-o'-lantern. And then, so before the climax of the movie, before... Lori actually sees and it you know has to fight off Michael. We see this creepy ass setup in the in the master bedroom. And now that you mention it, like he was obsessed with his sister in some way. To the point where he like it could be a sexual thing, could be a Freudian thing, whatever you want to call it. But to the point where he had to take her life. And he like you said maybe he didn't know how to express himself outside of violence and now we see him repeating the same thing projecting those same emotions he had for his sister on somebody else 
could it be to protect her? Could it be because he loved her? You know, we don't know. Like you said, we don't want to get super involved into it. But that tableau after watching everything really creeped me out more than it should have. <laughs> you know, like it was just meant. And of course, she run, she sees her other, her other, uh, her other friends killed, right? But I think it's the implication of it is the implication that he actually he's been stalking this girl, right? He'd been stalking her the way a hunter stalks prey. The way a predator, I think, is actually a better way of putting it. The way a predator stalks prey. To the point where, you know, when he builds this tableau, it's like he's toying with her, you know? Like, it's like he's just fucking around. Like, imagine a, m- imagine a tiger, like, smacking a wildebeest around right before it murders it and eats it, you know? Like, that's what that scene is to me. It's like him... It, because it implies that he's been following this girl around knows her routine enough that he can leave get the headstone and build this you know weird altar to her to like mess with her you know so like that little detail makes michael myers a lot more frightening than i first thought he was you know so it's the little things that you watch on a bunch of different when you watch them through multiple times that really stand out. Yeah, and there's also gags. Like I mean, like there's there's a bit of a mischievous side to Michael Myers that never gets explored again past this movie. He also hangs the corpse of Bob, who's the tall boyfriend of his mm-hmm. of you know of the blonde friend Linda, mm-hmm. played by P.J. Souls. Um, you know, he goes downstairs, he gets impaled on the wall by a single knife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right after that, Michael Myers puts on a sheet over his head and then cuts eye holes in the sheet mm-hmm. and wears glasses. And probably the second scariest scene in this movie for me is that scene because it's so quiet. Mm-hmm. The doors open um, and Linda, like, cannot even begin to imagine that the person who's under that sheet is not her boyfriend Mm -hmm. like you know she just thinks she's so safe and that nothing could ever happen to them and i think that's the other thing that this movie does it also gives you a sense of place that these people live in a town where you know they're not really afraid of anything Mm -hmm. nothing bad ever happens to them there's no kinds of incidents of violence Mm -hmm. you know it's very white upper middle class suburbia Mm -hmm. um can't relate, but I'm sure there was people. Who, I'm sure there's a lot of people who've seen it who can. But you at least understand enough of it to know. Yeah, of course. Why would they have any reason to suspect something is wrong? Like it's the type of town where you don't lock your front door, right? And you know, yeah, right. and everyone knows each other. Which another thing is, it's the reason why John Carpenter is such a genius in how he shoots it because the movie is shot in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain, you know, it's just like in the second movie. Even is still shot in the same general neighborhood. It, you, it reuses some of the same sets from the first movie, and the the hospital that they're in is like some sort of now it's like a VA hospital in LA. Mm-hmm. So it's just like the way they shoot it is enough to make you think that you're in a small town, where oh, totally. really you're like somewhere in Los Angeles. <laughs> now, one thing I want to talk about you brought it up was the music. The score of this movie was amazing, and. It also contributed to the whole eerie factor of this movie. I remember when I was in high school, I had an English teacher that told me, "You, you, you, have you read the poem Annabelle Lee by uh, by Edgar Allan Poe?" 
I read it at one point, but I couldn't. I can't tell you that I remember any of it right now. Oh no, that's fine. <laughs> because if you ever do read it again, and you can if you want, the the thing about it is that every other line ends with the e sound, e. You know, um, and what my the English teacher explained at the time that what the e sound does is it's kind of like an unnatural sound and it's kind of shrill it's loud and it gets in your ears makes you kind of cringe right and he was saying the reason why annabelle lee is so creepy is because if every line ends like that that sound makes you feel uncomfortable and that's very much how i felt listening to this music because it's very shrill synthesized music and a lot of it does make an e sound you know and that bothered me (laughs) tonight when we were watching it and it's the like you said the the little things the little attention to detail like the score in this movie was amazing the i love synth music in general this is the first time i think synth music has made me feel uncomfortable Yeah, no, it's it, and and it's a stroke of genius the fact that this movie was Halloween mm-hmm. because the original title for it was Babysitter Murders because it was about a killer killing babysitters and Babysitter Murders sounds super fucking cheesy drive-in kind of movie. People would have watched it though, <laughs> and uh, yeah, apparently when the producer like floated the idea to John Carpenter, uh, John Carpenter didn't like he he didn't think they could get away with it because he could not believe that that title had never been used for a movie before. Mm-hmm. And then once he figured it out, it's kind of like the last piece that I guess made all the sense in the world that they needed to get the movie together mm-hmm. because John Carpenter's uh, solution was then, hey, we don't really have to worry about you know a movie that lasts multiple days and people having to have multiple different wardrobes because if the movie's Halloween, it only takes place on one day. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's few people that she sees on one day and, you know, just, it made so much sense to do it that way. Who knew that making a movie based around one day was going to save him so much money? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and and he's not like the only person that does that. Like a lot of indie movies do that. Now, yeah. Yeah, and, and not to, not to take this somewhere where it shouldn't go, but like, you know, like Friday, the original Friday with Ice Cube <laughs> takes place on one day. Yep. It's yep. mostly a dialogue movie, mm-hmm. and it's just you know Ice Cube and Chris Tucker sitting sitting on the stoop of their home. Mm-hmm. Um, Reservoir Dogs, same deal. Yeah, you know, you got day. guys who are in one warehouse, and that's where the entire movie takes place. Salt and Precinct Thirteen, like you said, takes place yeah. in one night. Salt and Precinct Thirteen, same deal. It Assault and Precinct Thirteen feels super isolated even though the movie takes place in los angeles Mm -hmm. and uh yeah it's just like there's something like john carpenter just knows la and he knows the parts of la that are just feel like they're out you know that they feel like on the they're on the outskirts of the city even Mm -hmm. though it's probably somewhere in the city oh yeah like (laughs) he does a really good job of finding the i don't know who if he scouts these locations or he sends someone else to scout these locations but for these two movies in particular they found very good places to make a a, an isolated feeling give you that that feeling of being on your own all right so i guess the last question that we would ask ourselves is do we like john carpenter's halloween Mm, I say yes, in spite of, I mean, 
like I told you, uh, I'm really good at finding things I don't like. Like, there were some things where I'm just like, eh. Like, this makes no sense. Uh, like I told you, it was weird to me that Ple- that Donald Pleasance, I mean, um, Loomis was just kind of happened to be walking by. But like you pointed out, he saw the car. There's but, Yeah, there, I mean, but there's a lot of happenstance, too. Yeah. You know, Loomis happens to get there at the moment that she's getting, like, strangled by Michael Myers. Exactly. Well. They're, they're... And he just happens to get there right after Lori peels the mask off. Mm-hmm. So Loomis would know that it's Michael because he knows what Michael looks like. Oh, shit. I never thought about that. Yeah. It's, it's, that makes it's... sense. That makes sense, though. Yeah, yeah so... Like, uh, the movie relies a lot on happenstance. Um, For its time, you can overlook all of that. There were uh, were some actors that I wasn't a huge fan of the delivery, but luckily they weren't in the movie for too long for it to bother me. Uh, But again, you can chalk that up to being the 70s, you're making the the first movie of its type. Yeah. You know, what are you supposed to do, It's before this is a subgenre. So that being said, yeah, there are some gripes I have with the movie, but... At the end of the day, there is way too much positive in the cultural significance this movie carries. Like, yeah, how can you not like it? So I definitely like this movie. What about you? Do you like John Carpenter's Halloween? I think it's obvious from the moment that we started this episode <laughs> that I like this movie. And I've chosen to launch the podcast with this movie because it is actually one of my favorite movies of all time. And despite the fact that I actually, in some ways, like the second one even more... And I wish I could explain to you why that is, and I probably will get into it a little bit. Um, Absolutely. I love this movie. And I think the reason why I want to dedicate an entire episode to the newest movie in this series is because I think it's the only other movie in this series that kind of captures that same feeling from the original. So, interesting point, just kind of tying everything that we said earlier. So, how you said... You know, they're that we, we're these movies, right? Especially because this this franchise is stupid with these type of movies where a filmmaker is like, I want to ignore this and do this, right? So, you know, the, this franchise does it twice. No, this <laughs> three franchise times, does it three times, yeah, technically yeah. with the Rob Zombie reboots, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they do a soft reboot of this series. Well, they do one hard reboot, two soft reboots of this series twice. And each time it's still well done. You know, like it's one of those things where they're made by different um they're made by different filmmakers, but they're done in so- well, technically, well, H2O was made by John Carpenter, right? That's when he came back to the no. series. No. No, he didn't. Who was it? It was made by a director called Steven Miner, who really what he was known for was a couple of Friday the 13th movies, mm-hmm. and he directed Forever Young with Mel Gibson and Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> and I guess the original plan for Halloween H2O was that Jamie Lee Curtis wanted John Carpenter to come back, mm-hmm. and I guess like he had asked for some money he had asked for too much money and i guess the weinstein company didn't want to give it to him <laughs> those fuckers <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, i don't want to get into it <laughs> i mean let me put the like, not paying john carpenter is the least of their concerns at this point i mean the weinstein's put out some bangers but man they're fucking idiots no the Weinsteins and are, trash people. they're actual terrible people they're the literal trash <laughs> without getting too much into that part of it um yeah, he was supposed to come back. He backed out at the last hour, mm-hmm. um, and that's when she ended up reaching out to a director that she already knew. So, so the actual return of John Carpenter to the series, 2018 Halloween. Because it goes back to the score. 
So, yeah, H2O, the Rob Zombie remake, and then the 2018 Halloween. You know, these are all points in the series where they were able to tell a story that we've all seen before in some way, shape, or form, but they, you know, these filmmakers were able to do it, present it in a different way. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's cool to me that us as a fan base can be like, eh, fuck it, give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, and I think the, so the, these movies are executive produced by, at least up until uh, the Rob Zombie 2007 movie, mm-hmm. um, they were executive produced by a guy named Mustafa Khan. And Mustafa Khad is a uh, he's a film distributor and executive producer for these movies. I guess his family is from Jordan. Okay. And um, he actually was killed in uh, the Jordan bombings in 2005. Oh, shit. And tragically, he actually died um, on the same day as his daughter. Uh, and I guess it was his daughter's wedding. And oh, she was getting shit. married in Jordan. And uh, so now his, like, I, I don't know if it's his oldest son or whatever, but his son is the guy who's now uh, carrying, you know, he's now the executive producer for all these movies and mm-hmm. holds the rights. Not to not to get things on a really on down note, note. <laughs> Malik Akkad, who's now the executive producer of these movies, says is the way he looks at the Halloween franchise is it's basically like a choose-your-own-adventure series. Mm. And it's like, you know, it's for, and for me, I've always looked at the first movie as its own movie. Mm-hmm. I've looked at the series from part two through part six as their own series. Halloween three is its own series. <laughs> Halloween H two O ignores, uh, you know, three through six. Yeah, and goes straight picking up from two. Right, and then you know, eighteen, and then Resurrection also ignores those other movies, picking up right where H two O left off. Mm-hmm. Resurrection was so terrible. That it killed the friend. It was it, Halloween Resurrection is the Batman and Robin of the Halloween series. I know, I love it. It was so <laughs> terrible, and essentially like kills the entire franchise. And it's after that, you know, it took Rob Zombie coming back in two thousand and seven to launch it again. And when that movie came out, the Rob Zombie series, I have to guiltily admit that I thought Rob Zombie's movie was better than John Carpenter's movie. Oh sacrilegious but yeah and in the last three years i have revisited rob zombies halloween movies the second one was dog shit yeah the second one is actual ass yeah but that first one it did not age well and i want to take this opportunity to apologize to john carpenter (laughs) because uh john carpenter's halloween is the true Halloween. Nah, dude, you heard it. It's canon. Angel likes <laughs> Rob Zombie more than John Carpenter. It's fucking facts. <laughs> Fuck you, John Carpenter. Fucking step up, bitch. <laughs> uh, so yeah, after Halloween 1, you get Halloween 2. And Halloween 2 is m- really a good movie in that I love that they, you know, it's Michael is now out in the city, you know, and... <laughs> Michael does New York. <laughs> And what I mean by that is, you know, like by that point, they had already had more money to hire extras. The second one's a lot bloodier, but it's like red paint, <laughs> you know? My favorite thing is the budget difference from one to two, because there's a fucking explosion. There's two explosions in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the second one takes place in a hospital, 
Jamie Lee Curtis is still kind of the star of the movie, but is in it for much less time. Mm -hmm. And part two is more the Dr. Loomis movie. Oh, totally. And it's also when Dr. Loomis starts becoming a little bit crazier. Crazy Loomis! (laughs) And, you know, it's like... That's when Donald Pleasance kind of becomes a real star of the movie. Because Jamie Lee Curtis would do Halloween 2. And after the second one, she goes away from the franchise. Um, The third one comes up, which is, you know, not related to any other movie in the series. And probably so deserving of a conversation that maybe at one point we do a bonus episode just on that movie. But it takes place in Northern California. Uh, where there is a factory called Silver Shamrock that is apparently run by Irish warlocks. <laughs> <laughs> that their master plan is to essentially murder all the kids on Halloween night by having them wear these masks with computer chips that are connected to Stonehenge because they have like you know pebbles from Stonehenge inside of them. And then like the TV commercial that they have triggers the masks to kind of collapse your head in and then snakes and bugs and mice or whatever come out of your mask so what was the end game here what do they gain by killing children with stupid masks well it's funny because the guy who is the old man in robocop and is also like the main warlock in halloween 3 explains it but it's all so ridiculous. It's so over the top. It doesn't make any sense because obviously if you're just thinking about the United States, like there is ti- there is such things as time zones. And you know, that means the kids in New York are super dead by the time <laughs> the California kids come around. Like it reminds me of a joke where, you know, somebody would say Happy New Year and to someone in New York where someone's like, nah, I'm already in the future. <laughs> <laughs> It was, but my understanding was after season of the witch, the idea was that every Halloween movie, like my understanding was, it was supposed to be kind of like the series. Every new installment was going to be a different type of horror movie, right? Yeah, because like an anthology. Had, yeah, because there you go. So it was supposed to be like an anthology. Because the idea was that Halloween one and two ended the Michael Myers arc. Yep. And then the new arc, season of the witch, and then there was going to be another arc after you know for four. But it was so terribly received because so many people associated Halloween with being about Michael Myers that that's when they went back. Well, that and then I also think this movie was a victim of not coming out in the internet age. That's true. Because people thought, they they saw the title Halloween 3. Like, I think it would have made sense if you just called it Halloween colon Season of the Witch. That would have made plenty Mm. of sense. But the fact that they called it Halloween 3, it's almost like you're directly connecting it. Not to mention, the internet didn't exist, YouTube didn't exist yet, so you weren't, you didn't have uh, trailers readily available when they came out. Like, now these days, new trailer comes out, like, the new Halloween trailer came out, and it was trending all over Twitter, Mm -hmm. and everybody told everybody to watch it, and I remember posting it on, like, 20 different pages, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, And it just didn't work that way then. So, I don't think that concept just flew. People just thought they were coming in to watch the next Michael Myers movie, and they probably felt like they got absolutely chipped when they saw that the movie was about a mustache doctor who was trying to stop warlocks from killing kids on Halloween. What the shit is this? <laughs> Honey, grab the kids, we're going home. <laughs> so, uh, then after that, you know, I guess they learned their lesson because five years later, they would come with Halloween 4, which they 
titled The Return of Michael Myers. So wait. So that you know he's coming back this time. Oh, no, wait, wait. Ah, man, we should have played the game. Does Javi know the uh, the subtitle? We of... could do that for the next two of them because the titles are actually pretty similar. Um, all right, number five is... So there's The Return of Michael Myers is four. Five is The Curse of Michael Myers? Nope. So five is The Super Return of Michael <laughs> Myers? So four is The Return of Michael Myers. Five is the revenge of Michael Myers. What the fuck is he avenging? He's the one <laughs> killing people. <laughs> well, they kill it. They kill him, quote unquote, at the end of part four. Oh. So he has to come back to revenge himself. <laughs> Don't wait. <laughs> Never mind. Not going to argue the logic. <laughs> and then the curse of Michael Myers is fucking batshit crazy. The druids come back from number three. <laughs> And it's just so, you know, part four, um, obviously Jamie Lee Curtis was too big a star at that point, and she wasn't coming back to the franchise. Later, losers! So they end up casting uh, an actress named Daniel Harris, who is the child that would play his niece. So it would be Laurie Strode's daughter that he would chase in four, five, and six. So wait, Laurie Strode was killed off, like, twice in this movie in this movie franchise? Yep. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, part four is Michael going after uh, Jamie's daughter. Um, then Jamie Lee's daughter continues in part five, where I guess in part four they had introduced a sister, a, like foster sister character mm-hmm. that was super likable. That was like this, like b- you know, basic blonde white girl who was like you know, you know like a stand-in for Lori, mm-hmm. and who gets murdered in part five a la Psycho, in that she, like, dies in the first part of the movie. Uh, and then the entire movie is taken over by an absolutely annoying friend of the foster sister, who somehow is so in love with, you know, Lori's niece. So I she mean, sorry, been... Lori's daughter, who has, at the end of part four, morphed into an evil version of herself from touching Michael Myers... At the end of that movie, tries to murder her foster mother at the end of part four, which I know I'm making it sound absolutely ridiculous, and it is, but part four probably does have one of the best endings in the series, mm-hmm. in that uh, he spent the entire movie going after his niece, and at the end he's like shot and falls into a mine shaft, right? Mm-hmm. But right before Michael falls into a mine shaft, he kind of gets hit by a car and like you know, does the Michael thing where he's, like, dead or playing dead. Mm-hmm. And then uh, his niece comes up to him, you know, touches his hand, and you're, I guess, left to assume that he has transferred his evil onto her because <laughs> at the end of the movie, she kills her foster mother. And then Loomis goes to the bottom of the staircase and sees her at the top of the staircase holding scissors in her hands and wearing the same clown costume that Michael was wearing in the original movie. <laughs> And then he just has his gun at the ready. Always wanted to shoot a child killer. <laughs> well, part five is like a movie that probably reminds me of uh, of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 the most. Mm-hmm. Because it's a movie that has absolutely no direction. Like, it it feels like the skeleton of a movie. Really? It, like, it feels super undone. And the reason why it was undone was because Halloween 4 was released in 1988 Mm -hmm. and they wanted to release the next one in 89 
And they ended up starting to shoot the movie before they even had a completed script for part five. What? Yeah, so the movie goes into production and it changes storylines like 50 times to the... And I didn't re- find this out until very recently that there was an entire subplot that was cut from mm-hmm. the movie that obviously doesn't exist now because Halloween 6 negates it completely. But there's, I guess there's some sort of punk rocker that saves him at the end. So they, they reshoot the end of part four. Mm-hmm. But in this version of part five, this like punk rocker who's also some sort of Satanist like rescues him <laughs> and puts a tattoo on his wrist <laughs> and brings him back to life. And that's how he comes to life in part five, which is like in this weird other script. And there's actually like screenshots online of this like skinny, gaunt looking demoness, like punk rocker that brought him back to life. That's so fucking But they actually end up going with something that makes even less sense in that Michael gets found by a hermit. I remember that. (laughs) Who lives, who lives in like a shack outside of Haddonfield. And Michael Myers apparently goes into a coma for a full year where like I guess he doesn't need to eat or shit like like <laughs> like unless this guy was going to put him in like put an IV into him like, I like how just... first it's eat then it's shit hey, it's a circle of life that doesn't work like you're not worried about his muscles atrophying <laughs> and him like Like, just dwindling down to, like, 90 pounds of just skin and bones. You're worried he's shitting himself. You know, I have an 11-month-old baby. (laughs) So, eating and shitting, it's two things that I think about more than I should think about. So, he, like, goes into a coma for a year. He comes back to life the next year. Kills the hermit. Starts chasing after his niece again, who is apparently now in, like, a kid's psychiatric ward. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> Where Dr. Loomis, apparently, is in. <laughs> you know what? Part five is, like, part five is where Dr. Loomis officially jumps the shark. <laughs> because instead of, like, actually trying to help her or trying to kill Michael, he actually just spends most of the movie shaking this girl. <laughs> Like asking her, you know, to take to take him where Michael is, and she's, where's Michael? <laughs> it, you know what it reminds me of? It's like an entire movie of that Family Guy skit of Harrison Ford <laughs> shaking guys, going, "Give me back my son!" Have you seen my son? Give me back my son! <laughs> oh God! So. Yeah, that movie doesn't make any sense. Like, you can try to piece together the storyline from it. But what it does introduce is it introduces a guy dressed in all black, uh, which they refer to as the man in black, who is, you know, wears a black uh, coat, cowboy hat, you know, shoes. Oh, yeah, Johnny Cash. Yeah, like, it, it. it's exactly what you think of. And you never see his face in the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's only in a couple scenes where he's just kind of, like, standing outside a bus stop or, you know, like, just, you know, Michael drives by and he just happens to be there. Oh, like, like Michael's mom on riding a fucking unicorn in the Rob Zombie It's kind of like that, like... except this is supposed to exist in some sort of actual reality. Oh, so it's, he's real! Yeah. Not... 
he's not like, in Michael's head. And here's another here's, here's here's just an idea of how this movie didn't make any sense. Is that they didn't the guys who fucking made the movie didn't even know who this guy was supposed to be. He was just there, and that apparently one of the oh things that God. they thought might have might have been an answer was that there would be a future movie that maybe could have called this guy a brother to Michael Myers. Like a twin brother. Yeah, like that was like one of the ideas that they floated for this. Michael but, Myers with the cowboy hat? <laughs> but, but Halloween 5 actually ends with Loomis and his niece, like, uh, you know, luring him into his own house. Which doesn't look anything like the house in part one or part two anymore. Like, it looks like a Victorian... It looks like the Winchester Mystery House. Like, <laughs> with cobwebs everywhere. And and the movie ends with Dr. Loomis dropping a giant metal mesh net on onto Michael. And beating his ass as a 2 by 4 while shooting tranquilizers at him. Oh, yeah! That sounds like my Friday night. <laughs> And he beats the living shit out of him to the point where Loomis might have actually died after hitting him. Like, it's... He, he beat himself to death. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, like, he beats him up and then he falls on top of him and you just like, <sighs> and the eyes, like, start kind of slowly closing. And you're left to infer that maybe now that he killed Michael, he can die. But that doesn't even make any sense. Ah, uh, yes. The man, <laughs> I gotta respect a, a man too angry to die storyline. <laughs> but apparently only Loomis might have been the one that actually died. Because then Michael is in jail. And they have him sitting in jail on his knees. In handcuffs. Wearing the jumpsuit. And his white mask. Where the sheriff of the town says that they've called the National Guard. And that the National Guard is going to pick him up in the morning. So no one thought of taking the mask off? Apparently not in Haddonfield Jail. Yeah, okay. And then the movie ends with this guy in black just shooting up the police station with a machine gun. What the fuck? And disappearing with Michael Myers. I need to watch this movie. <laughs> I need to watch this fucking movie. This sounds like <laughs> this sounds like a fucking fever dream of like someone that watched the first one. <laughs> they watched the first Halloween, did a shit ton of cocaine, didn't sleep for three hours, or like, didn't sleep for like 72 hours. <laughs> and we're like, alright, let's fucking go. <laughs> and so Halloween 6 comes around, and, you know, it ends up coming like six years after because that 89 movie was so fucking terrible mm. that. It essentially killed the series for six years. Again. <laughs> and uh, the rights get sold off to the Weinstein Company and Miramax. Miramax ends up making Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Which, instead of... If they were smart, they would have bought the rights and just said, Fuck this, we're going to start over again and we're going to do something else. Reboots weren't a thing. But this was the year before Scream came out. So by oh. this point, horror movies had died such a death. That um, that there was some consideration that this movie might have even gone straight to video. No shit. And um, D- I guess Dimension Films, which is part of Miramax, they got the rights and they were going to make a last fucking sequel to the part five and part four. Where they explain that the man in black is actually like the head of a cult of druids. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> and the movie actually starts in the basement of the asylum 
where a baby's being born with like candles and like stones everywhere and it looks like something out of Hellraiser or mm-hmm. Wishmaster. <laughs> and like the entire movie is about how apparently this cult is are the guys who are you know, who have Michael Myers doing everything that he's doing and that the reason why Michael Myers has attacked the years that he's attacked is because there's a constellation that shows up of the mark of thorn and the thorn symbol was actually introduced in part five as something on his wrist. Mm. So it, but they never explained what that tattoo is on his wrist. Mm. And the man in black also has the tattoo in part five. Uh-huh. So this movie just decided to try to over explain it. <laughs> and by giving <laughs> it, let's try to make the fifth one make sense. <laughs> and they like turn it into a cult. You know, that that is now, like, in charge of Michael Myers, and Michael Myers ends up feeling like a henchman to this, like, satanic cult. And, but, this movie does introduce, it does, or reintroduces the character of Tommy Doyle. Oh, really? Who is now living across the street from the Myers house, but is no longer played by that kid who played him in part one. He's actually played by, in his first movie ever, Paul Rudd, who's now (laughs) Ant-Man. Oh, yeah, he's going to kill Thanos. <laughs> and, and it's just like, and it's funny because if you watch the producer's cut of Halloween 6, the ending of it will make you laugh, and I will explain that in just a moment. So this movie, he lives in a boarding house across the street from the Myers house, and he essentially just stalks the family that lives there. Mm. And the family that does live there is apparently the cousins of Lori Strode. And that live in the Michael Myers house. Mm -hmm. And apparently they have no idea that murders took place in this house. Man, that's just a bad realtor. (laughs) And Michael Myers comes back for some reason. And the the reason why he comes back is that the movie opens up with a baby. And the baby is actually the child of his niece who has also disappeared at the end of part five. So she is now, so she was kidnapped by this cult and the other alternate cut of Halloween 6 actually gives you the impression that she was raped by Michael Myers and that the child that she has is actually Michael's baby. Ew. It's really disgusting. That's really dark. Super disturbing and you would never get a movie like that now. But it's just like, but this is just like the wonderful thing where you're just like, God, we got so fucking far away from that first John Carpenter movie at this point that it just absolutely makes no sense. And uh, so, you know, after that movie, they completely wiped the the continuity. Oh, and, and one of the reasons why, you know, I think it's really funny that Paul Rudd was in this movie is that in the producer's alternate cut mm-hmm. of the movie, he actually stops Michael Myers by placing bloody rune stones around... And freezing him in place, to which I hope that the directors of the Avengers Endgame movie can do a tribute to the scene where Ant-Man, like, places bloody runes next to Thanos and causes him to die. Like, it just stopped right there. (laughs) But, um, yeah, then they wipe it clean, come back with Halloween H2O. Halloween yeah. H2O brings it all the way back to, like, the Scream style of horror movie. It was super self-referential to the original movie. Yeah. It's a movie that has not aged as well as I hoped. You know, mm-hmm. like, it was really good when it came out. It was the movie that got me into the Halloween franchise. 
Well, the reason why I really liked H2O and why I was kind of hoping we would do our own episode about it is just because I wanted, I really wanted to draw the parallels between Laurie Strode and Ellen Ripley. Oh, yeah. Because I remember we had a really long conversation about that. We were like a really in-depth conversation of how, you know, it was, it was, it went from, uh, you know, it went from Lori going from the last girl to becoming like this warrior that now was no longer afraid of the monster chasing her and was actually willing to fight back. Especially since, you know, the, the, the added parallel of Ripley having to defend uh, Newt and then Lori having to defend a young Josh Hartnett. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 we probably could discuss it when we do eventually discuss the new Halloween movie. Yeah, I think because be they also there. Because they also take some of these ideas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they had that, they did have that Ripley moment, which... 2018's Halloween may never have a moment as good as when she's chasing Michael through that school and now she's the one with the axe and she's the one who's chasing after him. And uh, even the new movie doesn't have a scene that's that powerful for me. Oh, no, no, Um, no. I mean, they do have a really cool callback where they kind of infer the same type of feeling. But yeah, not nearly as much as, like you said, Lori chasing him with a fire axe. Yeah, so, and then after they've gotten that movie... They completely destroy it with Halloween Resurrection, <laughs> which is the Busta Rhymes movie where they eventually had, where they essentially had a uh, internet reality show, which now you'd probably see on Facebook Watch in 2018, 2019. Hey, don't fucking give them free ads. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at this point, it was still dial-up, you know, early DSL days of yeah. Al Gore's internet. Where you wouldn't even think, where you wouldn't even think that anybody could stream something the way that they stream it now. Uh, it was definitely forward thinking for its time. <laughs> like I just picture myself trying to watch it on QuickTime. <laughs> I imagine myself trying to watch porn back in the day and be like, man, I had to watch you murdered. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, the series completely falls apart and folds in on itself eventually. But. Do you, oh, wait, I sorry. do want to, oh, yeah, before you, oh, I thought you were moving forward, but remember that episode of Raw is War, kind of tying in back to our old podcast project, when Buster Rhymes cut a promo with The Rock talking about how he beat the shit out of Michael Myers, and I was like, that can't be true, and then you're like, yeah, he did, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, oh, you're right, he totally did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. It was probably it was the low point of like I said the Batman and Robin of that series. I don't know when you're talking about a movie that had several low points. <laughs> yeah, well, the series has had several low points. Like it's a series that you know you get a strong sequel and then you get a series of shit sequels that comes out of it. Oh God! And I really want to discuss the. I- I'm gonna save the Rob Zombie version of it for our next episode where we talk about. The newer Halloween movie from David Gordon Green. But, yeah, it's like, you know, I love this movie. I disparage the franchise, but I own all the sequels. And I have a terrible, like, guilty pleasure of watching all of them around Halloween time. So, He's not lying, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I really want to thank you guys for joining us for this first episode of the show. Um, and it's going to be a little rough, you know, um, but I feel like we'll probably get a better flow as we start getting more episodes into this. So as of right now, we are on Instagram. Do we like movies? Yeah. 
It's oh. at Do We Like Movies Pod on Instagram, and obviously the the podcast is Do We Like Movies. We're also on Facebook. Um, our podcast is available through Podbean, and will also be available on iTunes. And the Google Play Store as well. We also have an active email that you guys can send movie suggestions or discussion topics to at do we like movies pod at gmail.com. And we will be checking it semi regularly. Uh, if you please, no flamerinos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, please, um, you know, if you have any ideas for future episodes of this show, uh, we would gladly take them. Um, you know, this is a new venture for us. Also, if you guys have any shitty movies that we can force Angel to watch. Because <laughs> me personally, I love terrible movies. Angel, not so much. But anything you guys want to send to us, feel free. Yeah, until next time, my name's Javi. And I'm Angel. Alright, later, turds. <laughs>